Well, a, to speak theologically of the day, a blessed festival of the incarnation to you today. And I said the incarnation, not there was no re in there just to make sure. <laughs> a blessed festival of the incarnation to you today. <clears throat> today we're going to be um, doing a message focused on the incarnation, in particular inspired by something that's communicated in one of my favorite Christmas hymns. And in one of those hymns, it has a, it has a phrase that says, far as the curse is found. And that's the third verse to the very familiar song, Joy to the World. Unfortunately, in many different arrangements of Joy to the World, that verse is oftentimes left out, and that always puzzles me as to why that verse is left out. But in order to look at that, that is actually reflecting a biblical idea of there's some sort of curse, and the coming of Christ into the world speaks something to that curse. So we're going to look at the biblical theology behind that idea and some application to that by going from Genesis to Revelation. Now, before you start getting fearful and thinking that we're going to be here nonstop from here until maybe two Sundays from now, uh, we're going to be looking at this from uh, not a 100-foot view or a 1,000-foot view, but from a cruising altitude view, a 35,000-foot view, looking at it uh, from that perspective. So we're going to start today in Genesis chapter 3 starting in verse 14. Then we're also going to be looking in Galatians uh, chapter 3, and the verses are, the passages are printed out in your bulletin on, uh, <clears throat> for the sermon text. But Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 14, uh, we'll be looking at Galatians 3 as well as Romans chapter 7. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14, well, it says through 19, I'm calling an audible, and we're going to read through the end of the chapter. And so, and that was a, that was a decision made this morning. So no one made an error in that. (laughs) Genesis chapter three, verses 14 through, through the end of the chapter, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly, you shall go and dust. You shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, But you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. 
Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. And we'll read the other passages as we progress in the message. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you that we have just now heard your holy word, and we pray, O Lord, that you would do your good work in each of us by your spirit through your word. We ask, Father, that you would lead us as your people in the way of life, and that the truth of your word might become ever more real to each of us in this room. We ask, Father, that you would guide this preacher, that you would chain him to the text of the word, that he might freely declare truth, and that he might do it accurately and faithful, faithfully with understanding and clearly. We pray these things, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think of Christmas and we hear that word, there's a lot of things that come to our mind. Maybe the ideas of all sorts of different lights. And depending on how old we are, uh, we might think of lights in terms of big knobby ones. and call them the, the peanuts lights. Or we might think of them as now, if you're a lot younger, think of them strictly in terms of bright, shiny LED lights that never, ever, ever, ever burn out, it seems. Or we might think of a tree. Or we might think of a familiar song. Well, I don't know how familiar it is anymore, but uh, talking about going to grandma's house over the river and through the woods to grandmother's house we go. All of those kinds of things are nice and they are enjoyable. But all of those things are also ancillary, which means subordinate and not necessary to what we call Christmas. All of those things are ways that different people in different times have expressed celebrating the holiday, but those are not essential to it. In fact, the idea of celebrating Christmas is not commanded in Scripture, so we're not obligated to observe it as a day. But it is beneficial for we thinking about the Incarnation, which is why I said a blessed festival of the Incarnation to you earlier today. And this is very significant For the Incarnation has everything to do with what we just read here in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 through the end of the chapter. Of course, we picked up here in Genesis 3, and there's a bunch of things that happened before that, which we will very briefly overview. We looked at Genesis chapter 1, we saw uh, an overview of God's creative activity in creating the heavens and the earth, and creating all that we see and all that we don't see. There are seven days of that creation in which he created, uh, he created the light and the darkness. He created the sun and the moon. He created, <clears throat> and he created everything that lives, everything that walks on the ground, everything that swims in the water. He created the, uh, and he created man and woman in seven days as it's recorded. And after each day, he said of each thing, it was good, and God said that it was good. 
after each element he had created. But after, the, uh, after he created Adam and Eve, of whom it is uniquely said, and he created Adam and Eve, he created them in his image. That is unique. That is the only part of creation which is created in his image. We've dealt with this before, but the idea is that he created him with dominion. He created man with authority in order to rule over creation as the vice regent. And the way he went, so would creation go. The way he went, so would creation go. The way mankind goes, so goes creation. The one who rules over it um, affects, affects it. There were great blessings in that. In chapter 2, we look and we can see. And of course, after that seventh day, God rested. And after that, after that sixth day he created, he said everything is good. It was very good. And on the seventh day, God rested from his work that he had done in creation. Then we turn to chapter 2, verse 4, and we can see what we might call an inset. A, if you, what I mean by an inset, if you've ever looked at a map, and not one on the phone or on your computer, but like an atlas or a fold-out map, we can, you can open it up, say you were to take a look at a map of Washington, seeing that we're in Washington. You'd see on the front side, you see a picture of the whole state. And you turn it over to the back side, and you see certain parts of the state that are expanded. And you can see all the various details of different parts of the state. Usually, it's in most maps, it's usually in the metropolitan areas and maybe, the, some more, maybe some of the more popular tourist destinations that might not be metro areas. But what we have in chapter 2 is an inset that's focusing on Adam and Eve, focusing on the creation of them and what happened after that. And the things that we see is we see that uh, it happened in this place called Eden, and everything was beautiful and wonderful. There was life. There was no death. It was just life. And Adam was given, <clears throat> was given authority to name the beasts. He was given authority to rule over the beasts and the plants. And creation served him and provided for him. Of course, God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And, he, and out of Adam, from his rib, he made Eve a helper fit for him. Zeno, we oftentimes think of the idea of, I just want to be alone with God, just me and God by myself. Well, that situation was there at the very beginning. What did God say about it? Not good. So he created a helper for him. He created Eve. <clears throat> and he looked at Eve, the woman that, that God had made from his rib, and he said, This is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I had a, seminary, a professor in seminary who read this. It was a systematic theology class, and he's talking about creation. And we oftentimes read this as Adam looking and very gently and quietly saying, hmm, 
bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And he speculated that uh, it probably it might very well have been something more like this. And he did something that I can't do, which is a whistle. And then he said, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Whether or not that actually happened or not, I can see that being a distinct possibility. And so we see this place of creation. Mankind is in fellowship with God. Mankind is in fellowship, harmonious fellowship with creation. Mankind is in harmonious fellowship within itself. There's no death. There's no sickness. There's the... Uh, creation provides produce for uh, produce and things to eat for Adam and Eve, and it is all there for them, given to work, given to guard, uh, to guard and keep, to keep and guard the garden. But then we have something that happens in chapter three. There's a very important word there at the beginning of chapter three. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other beasts in the field. That the Lord God had made. And what we see happening is that uh, there's God has, had given a command that there was a tree of which they were not to eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was if you eat for this, the day that you the day that you eat of this tree, you shall shall surely die. That was what was stated. It was obey me. That's essentially what it was. Obey me. It was the law of God summed up in all of that. Obey me. So the serpent then tempted Eve and said, did God actually say to you, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And of course, you know, we've heard this before. She responded, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the of the of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden Neither shall you touch it lest you die. And she immediately added something to it. She added something to it. She added something to God's command. And the results were devastating. For the serpent then took that and then poked it a little further. You shall not surely die, but you're going to become like God. You'll become like him. He's, he wants to hide that from you. And so she ate from the fruit. And of course, she gave some to her husband, which he says he was with her and he ate. He was there. It's not that she did it and he just happened upon it. He was there. He didn't stop her. He was a participant in it. And then, of course, when she gave it to him, he said, well, okay," And he ate of it. And what what happened immediately afterwards? We saw that they 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 realized their nakedness. And they were ashamed. And they, there was a death that occurred. Because God speaks of that. But then we have this interesting, uh, almost comical scenario that comes afterwards. In which we have, so they realize that they were naked and they covered themselves. Then they hear God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid themselves. And the Lord God, of course, said, where are you? And they said, well, we heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked. 
and I hid myself. I said, who, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And so we have from here now almost a comical response. Adam, rather than owning up to it, rather than saying, yes, I ate of the tree, he said, the woman you gave to me. Yeah, she gave it to me and I ate. And so we have him immediately passing responsibility, saying it was somebody else's fault. He said, it's this woman. She's the one who gave it to me. And you gave me the woman. So ultimately, it's your fault. That's ultimately what he's saying. We have this passing of the responsibility. And so then the Lord turns to Eve and says, what is this that you have done? And she says, well, the serpent, he tempted me. She basically said, well, the devil made me do it. Passing of responsibility. A friend of mine once said, you may have heard the phrase, to err is human, but to forgive is divine. He took a little change of that statement. And he said, he said, to err is human, to blame somebody else even more so. And that's exactly what occurred. We can immediately see in that there was a change to the human condition. Immediately after, the, after they ate, there was a change to the human condition. And then we now move to the passage of which we read. And we have the results, the pronouncement of God upon Adam and Eve and upon their posterity and even upon the creation because of that failure to obey God. Failure to keep his commandment. God had said, do this and live through the form of don't do this and you will live. But they did that and now they don't live. But he pronounced several different curses. We're going to deal with those in reverse. We're going to start with the curse on Adam. In verse 17, he says unto Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust. To dust you shall return. We see, first of all, that he says of him, the ground is cursed because of him. The ground will no longer cooperate with Adam. It will rather produce thorns and thistles, which are not fit for which are not <clears throat> fit for the way it, they were intended to be. And furthermore, he shall eat in pain all the days of his life. That is, there shall be difficulty. It will not be easy. It will be hard. It will be painful. There will be illness. There will be suffering. We look at the history of mankind and we can see that creation does not cooperate with us in order to produce for us. There are times, of course, when things are all right, but there inevitably comes drought. There inevitably becomes deluge. And even in places in the, in, in the world where there's abundance produce, for instance, in what's called the breadbasket, that's only there because 
not because the earth cooperates, but because we have forced the earth to cooperate by means of intense irrigation. But it doesn't cooperate on its own. It did there. It didn't cooperate on its own. <clears throat> Rather, it is of hard work and it is difficult and it involves the sweat of the brow. And so we see one aspect of this curse is that Adam in his relationship to the creation has been cut off. And then we see you shall eat the uh, Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till till you return to the ground, that it will be laborious. Part of the break there is it shall be laborious. They were in the garden where everything was there. It was growing. All they had to do was take from any tree other than that one, and they could have to eat. But now it's not all going to be there. They have to cultivate the ground. They have to irrigate the ground. They have to make sure that it works. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. And then also another thing was pronounced. In that while Adam was to rule over the earth, the ground, now the earth, the ground, ultimately rules over him for what does it say till you return to the ground for out of it you are taken for you are dust and to dust you shall return that the ground will now swallow him back up the ground will now swallow him back up he will return to the dust he will die he will die and so we see that there was a devastating effect here upon adam The relationship to creation had been broken. The relationship to life had been broken. And then we see a statement placed upon Eve, moving back to verse 16. To the woman he said, I will will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The bearing of children will not be an easy matter, but it will be difficult and painful. Uh, furthermore, he also goes on to say, uh, and <clears throat> now there's debate as to how this should be translated. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. That's taking it as a form of some almost as, as, a, as some some people read it as a, um, a statement of a blessing of sorts. But in reality, this needs to be understood as a statement of judgment, a statement of curse. And this 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 phraseology that's used in the Hebrew is also used in Hebrews chapter 4, in which we see, <clears throat> in which God speaks to Cain, where we have Cain and Abel. Remember that story. Uh, Cain offered a sacrifice, and so did Abel. Abel's was accepted, and Cain's was not. And we see the same phraseology in, in chapter 4, verse 7. Starting in verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. It's the same phraseology there. 
sin does not. And so the language here would lend itself to not saying so much that Eve in the natural state is being my desire shall be before you say, oh, Adam, you're so wonderful. But rather, it's a sense of trying to overtake. A sense of trying to overtake. Now, we, we think of this primarily just, we would read this primarily, we are tempted to read this just in terms of the marriage relationship. Again, that marriage relationship, just like things in the law of God, is but a most is a very basic type of relationship, and it's reflect and there's a reflection upon other relationships. Mankind is at war with itself. Mankind is at war with itself because we ate of the tree of that tree, because we ate. Mankind is at war with itself. There is no peaceable relations. Now, this is not to say that the New Testament, where it says that the husband uh, should be <clears throat> should be head of the wife in the sense of in the same way to and to lead his wife in the same way that Christ loved the church is invalid. That's a different aspect and a different thing of which we're thinking about. But here we have this idea conflict is being reflected here. It shall not be easy. Rather, life with one another shall be difficult and there shall be turmoil. That's part of the fallen creation. We look all around us. In the news, there's, uh, there's always talk of war. There's one, on the, there's one right now that a lot of people are talking about. But there's always talk of conflict and humans trying to destroy each other. So now, in part of the curse is mankind has been separated from itself. And then, now we'll go to the curse upon the serpent in just a moment. Then we see at the end of chapter 3. Starting in verse 22, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim at a flaming sword and turned away, to, turned away every way to guard the way to the tree life. And so we have... Now, Adam and Eve have not only had their relationship with creation broken and their relationship with each other broken, now the relationship with God has been broken. And now you take a line broken with the earth, broken with creation, and broken with God. What do you have around them? A box, isolated, separated. Mankind has been devastated. Mankind is in darkness at this stage. This week, um, a new, a, a rewrite, I should say, of Silent Night was shared with me. Um, give credit to uh, uh, Kim for sharing that with me. It shared with me a new rewrite of Silent Night, where it's not, the tune is the same. It's the lyrics that have been uh, rewritten. And it's a very unique progression, and, but we're going to see here in the verse 1, and in each movement of our sermon, we're going to have another verse. But verse 1 of this rewrite, it reflects what's here at the end of Genesis chapter 3. Silent night, lonely night, all but calm, all but bright. Darkened clouds have hidden God's face. 
Deepening doubts have veiled his grace. Have you heard our cries? Have you heard our cries? Think of that in terms of the tune to Silent Night that we know. But if that, and if that's all there were, if that's all that was part of this, it would indeed truly be a dark situation. And again, we can re- continue reading in the book of Genesis and we can see the devastating effects. Immediately afterwards, two brothers kill, uh, go into conflict. One kills the other because one sacrifice was accepted and the other was not. And there was envy there. And Cain killed his brother Abel. And we continue to read and we begin seeing warfare and weapons of warfare and other things being built. And we see in Genesis chapter 6 that mankind was greatly evil. But now we move back to chapter 3 verse 14 with the statement to the serpent. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Or you, he, shall, he, <clears throat> he shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Other ways of translating that. Mankind is now in a state of enduring death, Sickness, warfare, much suffering, and ultimately eternal condemnation. We move now to this curse that is pronounced upon the serpent. And he says to the serpent, you are also cursed. And he puts a word of hope, not for the serpent, but for Adam and Eve there in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, with what we call the first gospel. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. Here, what we see is we see now a statement of hope. We see a statement that from Eve is going to come an offspring, and the language lends itself to a singular offspring. There come from Eve an offspring, and that offspring is going to crush the serpent's head. That offspring is going to be wounded is going to be hurt in, in the process. But the serpent's head is going to be crushed. An offspring is what? A baby, a child, someone born of another. And so here we have a statement of hope, a statement that there is someone coming to undo that. We see that demonstrated in verse 20. And 21, particularly 21, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. What do we see God doing? We see him clothing the nakedness of Adam and Eve. We see him giving grace. We see him covering their shame. We see him covering their sin. We see him acting graciously. So we have there in seed form some sort of a promise of something coming. So looking at the next verse of our silent night, we're now at this stage. Silent night, lonely night, 
wearied by many trials, clinging to the promise foretold, peace and comfort for our souls. Lord, we long for you. Lord, we long for you. Here on this day, recognized the 25th is a day which is marked as a day to remember the incarnation of Jesus Christ into human history. For in the incarnation of Jesus Christ into human history, we have that seed of Eve who is to crush the serpent's head. He did it. We see this one who entered into human history is one who did not come in a blaze of glory, but rather he came in extremely humble circumstances, in a manger, taking upon the to being in the form not of a mighty warrior, but in the form of a vulnerable and weak baby who needed his mother to keep him alive. He needed to be fed. He needed to be nourished, to be cared for, fully human. Also fully divine, being the human nature united with the divine, the divine nature, the human nature united to the, to the divine nature and the person of Jesus Christ. But we have this offspring and we see throughout his life that he did many great works demonstrating who he is and what he intended to do. When we turn to the book of Galatians in chapter 3, we have this language of curse of which is being spoken. It's language of curse. Galatians chapter 3. <clears throat> 3 verses 8 through 17. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God, by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, Christ redeemed them from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so we might receive the promised spirit through faith. We have here in this statement that there is a curse that is upon human, humankind, and that curse is rooted in this. You do not abide by all things written in the book of the law. You do not do this and live, which is what we certainly and most definitely failed to do in the garden. That in order to be justified, that's be declared righteous and counted as righteous by works of the law, it requires doing all of the law. The law being his moral law, his Ten Commandments, and failure at one point is failure in the whole thing. And it's not just the external acts, but rather it's even all the things that lead up to it, lead up to those actions. When it says you shall not 
commit adultery. It's not just the final act that is the breaking of the law, but everything that leads to it and anything that is not consistent with it. Same thing with murder and all the others. In order to be justified by law, the entire law must be done. But he argues that there's no one who is justified before God by the law because the righteous shall live by faith. In fact, I would argue it is impossible for us to be justified by the law because that, that covenant, do this and live, has already been broken. We broke it in Adam in the garden. We were there. In Adam, we ate from that tree. We sinned against God in Adam. We failed to keep that covenant. Adam as our representative. It cannot be done. As a matter of fact, we even see they had a perspective change. At the end of after they were created, it says they were naked and they were unashamed. After they ate, they were still naked, but now they were ashamed. What changed? Their perspective on the nakedness. For the perspective on the nakedness brought about realization of sinful things. Before, it was not anything that caused trouble. But now the perspective has been changed because sin has entered in. And now we cannot keep the law in order to be justified by by faith. The law says the the one who does the law is the one who will live by them. But there's been a redemption that's happened. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This language of curse. What happened to Adam and Eve after eating in the garden? They were cursed. Now what has happened? Someone else has become a curse for us, for his posterity. He has become a curse for us by means of being hung on a tree. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ is something we can never let go of and something we can never get over, which is why the incarnation is so very important. For if there's no incarnation, there is no cross. If there's no cross, we're still under the curse. If Jesus were not born of the Virgin Mary, there would be no cross for us. And we're still under the curse. I remember reading some years back, I think five or six years ago, someone making a statement. The person was not a Christian. In fact, I I would venture to say that they were probably an atheist based on their other writings. But he was arguing about how religious people, how we need to get along. And he said this, Jews need to get over the Holocaust. Muslims need to get over the Crusades. And Christians need to get over the crucifixion. And I must say, for him to ask us to get over the crucifixion is for him to ask us to get over the very thing of which is the basis of our hope. Because that language presupposes something. It presupposes that the crucifixion was just an unfortunate martyrdom. That it was just an unjust murder. That's all it was. It was an unjust murder. In that, the most righteous person to ever live died 
the death, died something, died in a way that only those who deserve the death penalty got. So in that it was unjust. But it was for a purpose. It was for the purpose of redemption. We don't look at the, we are not to look at the cross as something to say, they killed our Messiah, so we need to go get them. No, the cross is something which we look at and we say, glory be to God that he sent his son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in those swaddling cloths, in, in that manger, who by his, by his active humility in his life, And his act of weakness in dying for us redeemed us from the curse. He took upon us himself the curse. Deuteronomy chapter uh, 21 verses 22 and 23 uh, is the quote that is being quoted there in Galatians with regards to cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not devour the land the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. We see that one who dies a death due to the death penalty is cursed. And Jesus took upon himself the curse. This is wrapped up in his humiliation. We see that wrapped up, as we mentioned, in his, in his coming to us in a manger, in this dazzling display of humility and vulnerability and weakness. And so thus, wherever Christ's blessing goes through his work of redemption that he did upon the cross and by he demonstrated his effective through his resurrection, Wherever that goes, he brings his blessing wherever the curse is found. And and upon whom was the curse pronounced but upon mankind? And so wherever Christ is brought, there is brought the end of the curse. There is brought his blessing. And so in Christ, we can say from a Big picture, looking at it from outside of time perspective, the curse is over. We might say then, why do we still suffer? Why do we still get ill? Why is it, why do I still have to work by the sweat of my brow that I might have food on my table and shelter over my head? Because we still live in this fallen world. It's because we, are, we still have our feet in this fallen world. We have a taste of what's to come. We have the batter for the cake recipe. But we don't have the cake yet baked. And so thus we still suffer. Thus we still get ill. Thus we still find ourselves experiencing severe pain and difficulty. We still find ourselves facing death and the pain of death. But that's not the final say. It is true. Around every table, there's going to be a seat that was once filled that is empty. Around every fireplace, there will be a spot where someone used to sit 
because they're gone, because they died. But for the one in Christ Jesus, death does not have the final say, for Christ became the curse for us. And so wherever he is brought, and wherever he enters into people, there, wherever the curse is found, his blessings flow. For that person and those people are brought into the joy of a hope and a confident expectation of what's to come. That version of Silent Night also has a refrain that comes after verse 2. It says this, and it's a different tune. I, I can't sing it yet without accompaniment. It says, Jesus, you entered our night, bore our sorrows, laid down your life, conquered the darkness and rose up in light. All of our hope is in you. Then the third verse says, silent night, lonely night, yet there's peace at your side, covered by redeeming blood, sheltered in your arms of life, love. Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. Because Jesus took upon himself the curse. And we have a picture of what this looks like. We have a picture of what it means, what far as the curse is found, his blessings flow, of what it looks like in the book of Revelation, chapter 7, which we have starting in verse 9 through 17. I have the text here, but I forgot to put the references, so I have to look it up. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation and all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, when palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and honor, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst no more anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear. From their eyes. And here, what do we see this picture in heaven? We see this picture of really what it means far as the curse is found. Is that here we see this picture of people from every tongue and tribe and people and language standing before the throne of God in one accord, in union with one another, not battling each other, not seeking to undermine one another but rather together praising the Lord and singing about the salvation that has come from God because of the Lamb of God, the one who sits on the throne. And all were bowing their faces before him. This is the great picture. We have this new people 
from every different walk of life, whether it would be a person's geographical rootings or whether it would be a person's ethnicity or a person's language or a person's status in life, all are there praising the Lord. Those in Christ from every different group. We have here, far as the curse is found, a new race of humanity. A new race of humanity that exists now. A people who are a people of the new creation, the church of Jesus Christ. Why? Because Jesus entered into human history, was incarnated, born of the Virgin Mary, lived, died, and he's created a new race of people. A people who, though they look different and act different, even within the context of a particular church, each of us are quite different from one another. Any couple who gets married realizes how different they can be. I see people giving side eyes to their spouses there. But there's something that, has, that, that we hold in common greater than our differences, and that is the Lamb of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, that new human race. You and I have more in common with the believers in the African savannah whom we've never heard of than the unbeliever who may walk like us and talk like us and act like us and and speak our language and such. Because Jesus was born the virgin, redeemed a people. So far as the curse is found, it is and will be undone. Even in this age, inasmuch as people who know him live their lives in obedience to God in their own different vocations and spheres of influence are bringing blessing to the cursed existence. May not see what that blessing looks like very much, but it's bringing the blessing to that cursed existence. We also see in this language, remember those curses that were pronounced in verses 15 through 17. We see the end of those curses pronounced. Listen, therefore they are before the throne of God, serve him day and night in the temple. He who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. Remember, what is it was said that in order to get food to eat, you're going to have to work and labor and the ground and the things that produce the food are going to fight tooth and nail against you. Furthermore, he says, by the sweat of your brow, you shall labor. What does he say here? I know there's folks who don't like heat, and this is a glorious sound here. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. No longer by the sweat of the brow. And then we will see all, all all the things that are deathly and lead to death, and the sadness and the sickness and the despair is gone. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. So here at the end of Revelation here in Revelation chapter seven, at the end of the book, 
we can, we can say now with the closing tag of that song, that rewrite of Silent Night, Silent Night, Holy Night, all is calm. All is bright. Why? Because our Lord Jesus Christ entered into human history, born of the Virgin, on that fateful night. We don't know when time of the year it was. Celebrate it this day, but we really don't know it was December 25th. But on, he entered into human history, and thus that seed entered into human history to crush the devil. So, brothers and sisters, in closing, this curse has come to an end in Christ Jesus. We have a taste of it, and it's coming. The complete end of it, experiential end, will be here for those in Christ Jesus. And so we have every obligation to proclaim the end of this curse to those who do not know that blessing. If that blessing is to be brought to wherever the curse is found, it is up to his people or have an obligation. We are the means that he uses to bring that through us proclaiming Christ and living, living lives of honoring, honoring him in our day-to-day, ordinary, mundane existences. And brothers and sisters, we have every reason to live in hope. The history of humankind is not a pleasant history. It is not a nice and it is not a <clears throat> it is not a fairy tale. While there's parts of fairy tales in it, in that you have a lot of bad people doing bad things. And there have been moments of light in human history. There's God always provides in his common grace people who people and, and groups of people who will, you know, keep things from going way out of control. And they're not always believers. But he always provides that. But yet the human history is not one really of a pleasant existence. We in our own moment in time will look at our time and say, say, and might say, it's never been this bad. It's because we're in the middle of it. We're in the middle of things and we look at that. But if we, if we were to step back and really look and read human history, we can say, this is absolutely nothing new. Absolutely. It's always been this way because of that curse. But blessed be God for he sent his son, Jesus Christ, born of that virgin, lived the perfect life and died for us. And so we live in confident expectation of what he's coming to do for us. And it can bring sanity to us in the midst of our insanity, even our own personal insanities. And if we're all honestly admit it, we all have personal insanities. If we're honest with ourselves. And so we should walk in light of this truth. This is something we should encourage one another with. And so truly because of this, we can say, he, bring, he makes his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And truly we can now say, because of what he did, all is calm and all is bright. Let us close. Father, we praise you and thank you, Lord, that you have been good to us that though we did not keep covenant with you, you were faithful to fulfill the promise that you made there in that garden in Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, that veiled in flesh and truly the Godhead we see, and that he lived for us, 
He died for us. He rose from the dead for us. And thus his blessings flow wherever the curse might be found. We pray these things, O Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.